tonight, why don't you join me as we pray and let's ask God to help us as we do one sixth and final skill of understanding the Bible. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking right now that you would encourage these dear brothers and sisters who have labored these last five weeks to make sense of this content, these Berean-spirited brothers and sisters who want to rightly divide your word. I pray that you would allow them to do that, that you would use me in spite of me to help them. Lord, I'm asking that each of us would be found faithful to fulfill your great command to us in Scripture, to do our best, as 2 Timothy 2.15 says, to do our best, to present ourselves to you as workers approved unto you who have no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing your word of truth. So would you grant that for the glory of your name we pray. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. By way of review... Having studied these last five weeks, I want to review them because these five skills all build one on the other. Can you all recall with me that the first skill that I uh, submitted to you is that I want to plead with you to learn to see. You need to learn to just use those two eyes God gave you to see what's already there. We are prone to be people who see but don't really see. We just glance over the Bible. We miss a lot of it. Consequently, the second skill, which is very related to the first skill, is we need to not only learn to see but learn to actually read, which I know most of us are literate. The point is we need to learn how to read better. The truth is most of us are not efficient readers. We know actually how to read the words, but we're not comprehending them well. And I am chief amongst you. Having done a whole lot of schooling that required me to do a whole lot of reading, I still read and I zone. I read and I don't even remember what I read. Or I read and I don't understand what I'm reading. I submitted to you in our second week several critical skills that if you can start developing these, it will make your time in God's Word more fruitful. Now, Having established looking at the Bible and noticing what's there and learning how to read more efficiently and effectively, the next skill, I dare say the most critical skill, is you need to learn the context, reminding ourselves that context is king, that when you get the context wrong, you're going to get the text wrong. I use that illustration, that's a big trunk, and nobody knows what that means unless I give you context. It might be an elephant's trunk, the trunk of a car, the trunk of a tree. We, we just don't know. You need a little bit more context. So too in the Bible, if you try to read any passage of Scripture and don't take into account its context, the truth is you will probably make the text say whatever you want it to say. It's quite easy to do that. That's why that girl, I think I shared this anecdote with you. I had a girl that was in college with me. We were in a Bible class, and she interpreted one of the statements of Jesus, I believe is in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is referring to the Queen of the South, which he actually tells us just a few verses later is Queen Sheba. He, she interpreted the Queen of the South to be Hillary Clinton. Because at that time, she was hailing from Arkansas and she was ascendant. She had become a senator in New York and everybody knew that she was a big deal. Now, that's ridiculous. Of course, y'all kind of chuckled at that when I said it, but how do we know she's wrong? Maybe the Lord was prophetically pointing to Hillary Clinton. How do we know? And the truth is, I can say with full assurance of faith, ain't no way that's talking about Hillary Clinton. And you want to know why? It's not because I'm smart or I'm prophetic. It's because there are simple basic skills of context that I can apply to the Bible and each and every one of us can come to the same rational conclusion, that is not talking about Hillary Clinton. That is talking about Queen Sheba. You got to learn the context. Now there's another context we often forget. We know the literary context. You read the verse and then you read the paragraph and maybe the chapter, that's literary. But there's another context. You might call it the cultural or historical context because don't forget the Bible is not Shakespeare. It's not just some beautiful piece of literature. 
It was written by real people to real people, at a real time, in a real place, to a real people, in a real place. It, in other words, is history. It's true. And so you need to take into account what can you learn about the person who wrote it? And what can you learn about the people to whom it was written? What can you learn about what was going on in the background? It'll help inform how you interpret the passage. So you need to know the context, the background, or the historical cultural context. But there's actually one more layer of context. This is the fifth skill we learned last week. I dare say that if you were to start with just a little word, what's the context of a word? Maybe a sentence. What's the context of a sentence? Well, maybe a paragraph. You take one step out, it'd be maybe a section. Uh, and then take another step out, maybe the whole chapter. Take one more step out, maybe it's the whole book. Maybe one more step out, maybe the whole Testament, the New Testament and the Old Testament. But there is one final context, which feels overwhelming, but we need to take into account. And that is the context of the entire Bible. Because the Bible has one ultimate author, God himself. So every word in that Bible is cohesive. It was authored ultimately by one person. And the Bible, as I argued last week, it actually presents one great big story. And so I challenge you to start attempting to internalize what is the big story of the Bible because only then will you be able to rightly interpret any given passage within the Bible. That's why people mistakenly interpret David and Goliath to be about courage or finding uh, five smooth stones in your life to slay the giants at your workplace. That's not a good way to preach that because you read it outside of the context of the big story of the Bible. You look at it in light of the big story of the Bible, you'll realize that story is not about being strong and brave and courageous like David. It's about how great big God is using a runt like David. It was not about David. It was about the God who enabled David to fulfill God's great promise to one day bring somebody you would never expect to save God's people from their sin. So you need to know the story. But that brings us to our subject matter tonight. Because the truth is, some of you are feeling like, man, I got some ammo now. I can do this. I know how to see. I've learned how to read. I now know what the context and the background, and I've, I think I've got kind of figured out the story. I'm ready to interpret. Give me a passage. But then you encounter something that's going to make your head spin. You ever approached the book of Psalms and realized, well, mercy, this reads a whole lot different than the book of Genesis. Or you read the book of Proverbs. Like, this is nothing like Revelation. Why is this all so different? The Bible doesn't like... Man, wouldn't it be nice if the Bible just read like one big long novel? <clears throat> It'd be easy to just read it straight through, but it doesn't. The Bible has all these different strange types of literature. And tonight, what I want you to see is that the Bible, it's not merely critical to know what it says. What I want you to see tonight is it's equally critical to know how. It said, for example, how many of you have ever heard this little phrase, I'm as busy as a bee? What does that mean? I mean, that'd be a weird thing to say if you're interpreting that literally. I mean, why are you calling me a bee? That's a weird thing to say. Of course, we all instantly know what that means because we're familiar that the phrase, I'm as busy as a bee, is what we call a, you may not know this word, but it's what's called a simile. It's a metaphorical. It's a figurative statement. It means literally you're as busy as can be. And there you go. <laughs> I didn't even mean it that way. Double entendre. The Bible actually has this sort of thing too. For example, in Psalm 1 and verse 2, it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water. That too is a simile, but the trick is, should we interpret it as that? Somebody might say, well, you know what? We need to be like trees, so we need to live next to streams of water. God commanded it in Psalm 1. And there are people that will actually over-literally preach the Bible and say, we got to be like a tree planted by streams of water. You need to plant all of your gardens right by the riverbed and make sure your homestead is right by the river. There are people that teach this stuff. I know this is crazy to you all. 
The reason that's wrong is because it's not merely what is said, it's how it's said. That is what you call a simile. Okay, here's another example. Any of you all ever heard the phrase from maybe your child, I'm starving. We call that hyperbole, or let's put it in common language. That is straight exaggeration. <laughs> that is not true. The Bible actually has phrases like that as well that are hyperbole or exaggerated. For example, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Now, do you know there are some people that have over-literally interpreted passages like that and said, well, i got to cut my eye out. And here's the truth, guys. If that is to be interpreted literally, all of us would be one-eyed. Every one of us. There was a famed man in church history, Origen. I shared this, I think, when I taught the church history many years ago. Famed man. He's one of the most brilliant people in church history. He battled lust, and he over-literally interpreted this, and the history tells us he castrated himself because he wanted to prevent himself from battling lust. Now, guys, there are people to this day that over-literally interpret the Bible, and you've got to remember there are phrases in the Bible that are what you call exaggerations. They're hyperbole. So you need to recognize it's not just what's said. You need to note how it is said. Here's another example. You ever heard the phrase, well, that apple fell far from the tree? That's usually a phrase when they say, like, the kid is a lot smarter than his dad. You're like, well, that apple, it fell far from the tree, and it's still rolling. Your kid's way smarter than you. That is what you call a metaphor. You're comparing something to something else. And the Bible is actually filled with these. For example, Amos famously called these uh, Israelites that were idol worshipers, he called them, you cows of Bashan. That's a pretty terrible thing. He just called them all a cow. He's using a metaphor. He is comparing them to something else. They're not literally cows. I get this is 101, but it's amazing how this can trip people up. Here's another example. You ever heard somebody say, man, that story just jumped right off the page? Now, that would be really weird, creepy, freaky if that actually happened. How could it literally jump off the page? It can't because that's what we call personification. It's where something that's not human, not animate, we make it look like it's a human or like it's animate for the effect to help you appreciate what's happening. The story's not jumping off the page. And the Bible actually has examples of this personification. For example, Psalm 98 says, the river claps their hands and sings for joy. The river doesn't actually do that. It is a personification. It's expressing how even the very rivers are redounding in praise to our great God. Or here's another example. You ever had your uh, husband say, my word, it's raining cats and dogs? I don't even know. I've heard before where that idiom came from. I don't exactly remember. It's a weird idiom, but we all exactly know what it means, right? It means it's raining heavily, and the Bible has idioms too. When I was growing up, it never made sense to me why in the book of Exodus it kept describing the promised land as a land flowing with milk and honey. I was like, well, that's a weird combo. And how I visually thought milk was flowing down the streams. I'm like, well, milk gets sour outside. That sounds disgusting. And do people like honey that much? And it's an idiom. It was an expression that would have been known in that day and time. A land flowing in milk and honey is a land that is rich in abundance. It's a land that you can live off of. And in that day and time, that agrarian culture, you needed a fruitful land to survive. It's an idiom. You ever heard this phrase? It's a deafening silence. That's what you call an oxymoron. Those are two words that seem to contradict each other, but when you hear it, you know what it means. A deafening silence is one that's so silent, it's, it's like it's gripped your attention. It's almost like it's screaming at you. You ever heard, uh, seen at a restaurant, this oxymoron on the menu? Jumbo shrimp. <laughs> I mean, shrimp are by definition tiny, but they make them jumbo. <clears throat> it's an oxymoron. The Bible has some oxymorons. For example, you remember Paul famously says, to die is gain. Seems like contradictory statements, but he's making a profound uh, idiomatic point. It's an oxymoronic point. He's driving home, though, though it seems to contradict, it is actually wed together one beautiful picture. You can't take it literally. You need to understand not only what is said, but how it is said. Here, let me give you one last one. 
You ever uh, heard of what's called an onomatopoeia? It's one of those vocab words that you had to learn maybe in seventh grade and you forgot what it actually means. An onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like the sound it's making. For example, when I, before I came to Hickory Grove 12 years ago, I pastored in Northwest Arkansas. And Northwest Arkansas is home to Tyson Foods, which has chickens everywhere. And literally, there were chickens everywhere. And so I woke up most mornings to cock-a-doodle-doo. Now, do roosters actually wake up in the morning and say, <clears throat> cock-a-doodle-doo? They don't. It's our feeble attempt at imitating their sound. It's us putting into English words a sound we hear, similar to bark, rough, moo, nay, bah. That's not actually what the animals are saying. It's our attempt to imitate their sound. That's an onomatopoeia. The Bible has some onomatopoeias as well. Uh, for example, have you ever recognized that the very word meditation, when we say to meditate on God's word, meditation in the original language is an onomatopoeia. It is actually making the sound that a cow would make when it's chewing its cud, which actually, if you understand the original language, it will remind you that to meditate is literally to like let the word of God simmer. It's to stew. It's to chew on. It's to extract every last piece of nutrients out of it so that it can nourish you, sustain you. The Bible is filled with some of these figurative expressions. All right, I lied. One more. You ever had somebody say, man, that guy, he is an honest Abe. Now, hey, my name's not Abe. Why are you calling me honest Abe? Most of us that are citizens of the United States probably know that that's an allusion to who? Abraham Lincoln, who was renowned for his integrity and honesty, and I don't know how it came about, but through the ages it became an expression, if you're an honest guy, you're an honest Abe. The Bible actually has some of these allusions as well, where it's alluding back to something, and the person would have immediately understood the connection. For example, Jesus, when he's asked by his disciples, what are some signs of the end? Can you give us a sign? And Jesus says, you wicked generation, you're getting no sign but the sign of Jonah. Now, the sign of Jonah was an allusion back to a man named Jonah who many years ago was in the belly of a beast, of the whale, for three days. And the sign of Jonah, it was an allusion to what Jesus was about to do. He, like Jonah, who was buried in the belly of a whale, he would be buried in the grave, but then would arise three days later by the mighty, miraculous power of God. It's an illusion. And so you need to remember that in the Bible, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it that matters. So the question then becomes, all right, well, when I read the Bible, I, I'm understanding what I think, but the truth is Psalms reads a whole lot different from Revelation. And how do I approach these differently? Because, Pastor, you're, it makes sense for me to read Genesis as history. I read it and I, I believe it's true. But then, so like I think Jonah's real. I think the creation really happened. I, I, I believe in the resurrection to be true. But then I get to Revelation and it's talking about these crazy animals with all these eyes and the Jesus holding stars in his hands and a sword coming out of his mouth. And do I interpret that literally? What do I do with that? This is where you have to remember that the Bible has several types, styles, or forms of literature. We have a word to describe these different types and they are called genres. And that leads me to our sixth and final skill I wanna to seal to your soul tonight. When you are studying God's word, you need to remember finally, in the final analysis, you need to remember or learn the genres. The Bible actually has a different types of literature. And this is actually going to be pretty plain to you. As we walk through this tonight, I think it'll all make pretty clear sense because you're going to be like, yeah, I've seen that. When I read the Bible, I, I pick up on that too. I want to show you just a handful of genres. Now, if the, I had many more hours with you, I would actually show you all the different principles of interpretation for each of the genres. We clearly don't have that time. We've got about a half hour. So I'm going to give you a high-level overview of them. I think just a good first skill is to know what to expect when you're reading Proverbs versus reading John versus reading Genesis versus reading Revelation. That's my attempt tonight is to give you some cliff notes so that when you come to it, you're like, okay, I know what I need to be looking for as I read this particular style of literature. I, tonight, I want to begin by walking through several different genres and just kind of give you a high-level overview of them and hopefully familiarize yourself with them. The first genre that we see right at the beginning of the Bible is what you might call the history 
genre, and it is as it sounds. It's the genre that reads like straight history. It kind of reads like a book would. It often involves a plot and settings and characters. It's Genesis. You all have read Genesis, right? It tells a story. It feels fairly sequential. So that means when you're reading books that are in this genre, you should expect them to tell you the truth straightly. Just like you would tell a story of your childhood to your grandchild or your son, so too you should expect these books to give you the facts. For example, when you read the book of Genesis, you should expect it to be true. Now you're thinking, Pastor, why are you belaboring this? We, we get it. We're with you. Here's why. Do you realize that most evangelical, even Baptist colleges in the United States... Praise God, one exception is Southern Baptist colleges. This is not true for them. But most Baptist colleges in the U.S., they actually teach that Genesis chapter 1 is not history. It's poetry. And therefore, God didn't literally create the world in seven days. In fact, it's not even altogether certain if Adam and Eve are literally uh, the first people. And a lot of conservative colleges today, you will have professors tell you that mankind evolved from these homo sapien type uh, ancestors and eventually God found two of them, breathed into them the breath of life, which they say is giving them a conscience and named them Adam and Eve. Now, time doesn't permit me to go on my little soapbox on everything I want to say about that subject. But let me just address it from our subject matter tonight. They are misreading the genre of this passage. The genre of Genesis is manifestly history. From start to finish, it presents itself as a historical record. There is very clearly two so-called Genesis creation accounts. If you've read Genesis 1 in chapter 2, and I think it's like verse 4, it almost looks like it starts over. But that's not because the first part was poem and the second part was true history. It's because the first part was a holistic view. It was a high-level overview. And the second part, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 4, zooms in basically on the creation of man and the creation of the Garden of Eden. It's like zooming out and zooming in. It's not two different genres. It's one. So that's why it's critical for you to remember you need to approach the literature the right way. When you read Genesis, you should expect it to be history. All other books would be like Exodus, at least the first half of Exodus. The second half of Exodus, if y'all ever read it, you'll read through Exodus chapter 19, and then all of a sudden in chapter 20, Moses starts telling everybody the law. And then it gets kind of boring. From chapter 20 to chapter 40, it's law after law after law after law. It doesn't feel like history anymore. It's like it, Moses stopped telling the story and is just reading something off the, off the law from God. That's a different genre. We'll come back to that in a moment. Other books in the Bible, you'll see, I don't have to read them all. You can see them all listed on the sheet. But you should expect all of those books to basically present themselves like a history book would. Now, the truth is, the Bible, it'd be great if the Bible was all history. It would be super easy. But it's not. There are other genres in the Bible. I alluded to this one in Exodus. Let's pick up where I left off. When you get to Exodus 20, it's like something changes. And that's because something changes. In Exodus 20, we encounter a new genre a different type or style of literature. It's what you call the law genre or the law style. It's a legal style. It is God's law. It'd be similar to, have you all ever noticed there's a world of difference between reading the newspaper or a blog post and reading a deposition or some court report? Y'all ever notice they are as boring as all get out? It's because it's a different genre. Its design, its purpose is different. So too in the Bible. When you get to Exodus 20, its purpose is different. It is actually presenting the very law of God to us. Now, here's why that's important. This isn't just a fun fact to go home and impress your friends or win a question on Jeopardy. It actually matters. Do you want to know why? Because when you read the law genre, you need to remember why it's there. This is why it's important for interpreting the Bible. The law genre does not exist for you to know what to do merely. If you think, well, now that I've gotten Exodus 20, i got to do this, 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 and this. If that were true, then we'd all be sacrificing animals and wearing clothes that didn't have the mixed fabrics. We don't do that. The law genre 
by definition, is a type of literature that is pointing to somebody else. It is telling us just how unbelievably holy God is, how unbelievably unholy we are, and how the only hope we ever have of keeping this law is if somebody else keeps it for us and we somehow get united or connected to him. That's the only hope. Otherwise, the law would be the worst literature in all the Bible. I have never once read the Ten Commandments and been like, man, I got this. Every time I read it, I want to like sink into the floor because I realize what a woeful, wicked man I am. You read the law and it is going to give you this unbelievable portrait of God's holiness and this unbelievable uh, portrait of your depravity. When you read it, it should immediately make you say, oh, praise God, Jesus is coming. I'm glad I know how this ends. I'm glad that he kept his promise and there is one who's going to come keep this law. So remember that so that you don't get into your Sunday school class and open up Exodus 20 and say, you know what, guys, here's what we need to do this week. And then you just start jotting it down. Now, by the way, that's not to suggest you don't care about the law. The law does give God's general guidelines for living. It means you should not triumphantly look at the law and say, if you're not doing this, you have no seat at my table. Far from it. This is a room full of lawbreakers who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and by His grace are slowly but surely being transformed into His likeness. Consequently, we are growing in grace. We are growing in conforming to His law, but we will never fully until that day comes when we are made perfectly holy, what the Bible calls being glorified in heaven one day. That is the law genre. Now, there are some other genres in the Bible that might perplex you. Let's consider, thirdly, that one that everybody loves, the poetry genre. Now, here's, people have a love-hate relationship with poetry. Some of you do. On the one hand, people love it because it's emotive. It appeals to your emotions. But on the other hand, people hate it because it's hard to understand. I mean, how many of you guys really like going home and flipping open your 18th century British poetry book? I had to take that class in college, and I hated every second of it because I didn't understand it. But how many of you secretly find yourself quoting lyrics to Christian worship songs as much as you do Bible verses? I do. Because there's something powerful about a poetic lyric in a song that connects with you that appeals to you. We were made for this type of literature. Poetry really does often grip us, and God has presented a great many sections of his Bible in poetic literature. But the truth is, you got to know how to interpret it. So if you go listen to a song lyric, you intuitively know that when a lyric repeats itself, it's not because the person's crazy or doesn't think you heard it or feels like it just needs to be repeated. It's for effect. Repeating, like the chorus, for example, that gets repeated in a song, it usually tells you that's the important point. That's the theme of the song, and it repeats itself. So too, in the Bible, the Psalms, for example, repeat themselves a lot, and you need to be careful not to overinterpret it. Here's a good example. Psalm 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim His handiwork. Those two things mean the same thing. They are repeating themselves. It's a poetry. That Hebrew uh, poetry does this. It repeats itself. So don't go say, okay, the heavens declare God's glory, but the skies don't do that. They do something else. They tend to display his handiwork. Heavens and sky mean the same thing in this poetry. You got to approach the poetry like that. Just remember that when you're encountering any poetry in the Bible, it is just that. Poetry. It's presenting itself not altogether different from a song lyric. Now, I'm going to have to move on, but let me just say, there are more rules that I'm letting on. Time doesn't permit, and honestly, it will kind of convolute the conversation. Just know, when you're going to poetry, you shouldn't interpret it the way you're interpreting my words right now. I'm trying to speak to you plainly and clearly. By the way, one of the, great, uh, one of the reasons I don't preach with much notes is because I like to look out and see your faces and track and see if you're... Uh, following me or if you got that look of preacher, I don't have any idea what you're saying. It helps me. I'm trying to be clear. I am not speaking to you in rhyme or in poetry. I wish I could. I'm not that talented. When you approach the poetry of the Bible, you shouldn't expect it to communicate to you like you would in writing a letter. We'll come back actually to that genre in a moment. But before we do, let me show you another genre, the one of the more difficult but popular genres. Man, doesn't everybody love the prophecy genre? 
prophecy. Man, isn't that interesting? I mean, who doesn't like a good prophetic book? The Bible is filled with prophetic literature. And let's think about what it means to be prophetic. Prophetic literature in the Bible is kind of like a declarative form of literature. It involves like predicting things or exhorting things, admonishing. It's very symbolic, but its point is to get a message across. Let me use an illustration. Prophetic literature is like me grabbing you by the shirt collar and saying, listen, something's coming. Now, I wouldn't do that in a letter. Letters are far more, you know, respectable. And I wouldn't do that in poetry. Poetry is far more emotive. But prophecy is me taking you by the collar and saying, listen, you need to pay attention. The Bible is filled with this prophetic literature, but it's tricky. People often misinterpret prophetic literature because they mistakenly think that God is taking them by the collar. But folks, most prophetic literature in the Bible, you must interpret it as God taking the original audience by the collar. It's critical that you pay attention to who is doing the prophesying and to whom it is being prophesied. When you read prophetic literature, you need to ask who originally is getting this message because it is critical for, to understand its point. For example, Habakkuk famously prophesies that God is going to do a mighty and wonderful thing in our day. And people claim that as a life verse. I had a girl graduate with me in college that announced that from the stage. Now, the problem is Habakkuk is actually telling the people that the crazy thing God is about to do in their day is judge them all and kill them and send them out of the land. He actually says it in the next verse. So context immediately skewers that whole argument. The point is you cannot apply that to yourself because that is a prophecy for those people in that day and time. Now, it does get tricky. And I'm going to wave the white flag and say there's just great debate and we're not going to solve it here. Where it gets tricky is all the prophecies that are made to Israel. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of prophecies are made to Israel in the Old Testament. And the debate is... Who do those prophecies apply to, to today? Does it apply to Christians everywhere? Does it apply to Jewish people that live in the nation state of Israel? The Jewish people have intermarried throughout the 2,000 years, so who counts as a Jew and who doesn't count as a Jew? Uh, is it just citizens of the modern nation state or not? Or does it involve people in the U.S.? Does it involve the U.S. in general? Who does that apply to? I'm waving the white flag and saying, I'm not going to answer that question tonight. Here's what I am saying. When you interpret the Bible, the first step always is figure out to the best of your ability, who did it originally apply to? Labor to figure that out. Who was getting this written to? And what can I learn about these original people? And only then, let that serve as like an anchor. It's going to tether you down and keep you from coming up with some fanciful interpretation and claiming a promise for you, a prophecy for you, that actually was never intended to be a promise or a prophecy for you. Prophetic literature, I am afraid to say. So this whole uh, six weeks I've been telling you guys, you can do this, you can do this, this is great. Now I'm telling you, all right, guys. Take it from the preacher. Interpreting prophecy is hard. It's real hard. Lots of scholars debate over this. So I would encourage you when it comes time to interpret a prophetic book of the Bible, tread lightly and depend on a few reliable resources. Get some differing opinions because it is often debated. But this isn't the hardest genre. There's one harder, but I'm going to save it for the last. Before we get to that, let's get to some that are just a little bit more enjoyable. I think probably everybody's favorite is this next one, the letter genre. Doesn't everybody love a good letter? Because it's how we talk. It's how you might write a letter to your mom or your grandma. I mean, a letter is, as you expect, it's written by somebody to somebody in prose. That's, you know, normal talking language. It is communicating generally one big thought or a few thoughts, but it's very clearly logically organized. Preachers like to preach letters. Y'all ever notice that preachers tend to preach Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You hear a lot of that and you hear a whole lot less of Proverbs or Habakkuk. And it's because those letters are 
Well, they're letters. They read easily. We preachers have to spend less time helping you understand what on earth it means because it's painfully obvious what it means. We have to spend more time helping you understand what it means in light of the whole Bible. That's our big job there. Whereas when we go to some of these other passages, we have to spend half the sermon just helping everybody get up to speed on what on earth is this even saying. Letters are pretty straightforward. They communicate the way most of us would talk. So, for example, if you look at that list, we've got Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Basically, most of the New Testament is in this letter format. It's a tremendous, uh, tremendously easy uh, genre to study. In fact, if you're wanting to apply these six skills that I've been teaching you this uh, last six weeks, I would challenge you to begin in a letter. You'll get discouraged if you begin in Revelation. <laughs> You'll get discouraged if you begin in Haggai. Go start in 1 John or in Ephesians. Just start slow because it's going to read the way most of us think, pretty logically, rationally, sequentially. It'll be easy for you to work through it. And once you start practicing those skills, then branch out and start practicing it maybe in some history books. And once you feel like you've now got this practiced, then start really getting daring and see if you can dabble in some Psalms or Proverbs. And then once you've got that, you're ready to dive into the deep end of prophecy. But before that, there is another genre that you may have never thought of as its own genre. There is something unique about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that separate it from all the regular historical books of the Bible. Here's what I mean. Have you guys ever found it odd that Jesus lived 33 years, but prior to age 30, we only have two stories, arguably three, his, the birth narrative, and you might include as a second story him getting dedicated at the temple. And then we have that story of him being 12 years of age or so in the temple, wowing all the Pharisees and Sadducees, and then all of a sudden he's 30. And then when you read the three years of his public ministry, you get random stories. Some of them repeat, like two different guys will say the same thing. Sometimes their versions differ slightly. And then you'll notice John tells us that Jesus did so many things that the world can't contain the books it would take to record it. And you're like, well, then why did we just get this? <laughs> That's because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John belong to a special genre that, this is not a technical word, you know this word, it belongs to what we would call the gospel genre. Here's what I mean by the gospel genre. The gospel genre, unlike history books, is an eyewitness account. Unlike Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, he wasn't an eyewitness to all of that. He was just recording what the Spirit inspired of him. He was involved with a lot of it, but he didn't see it all. Everything that's written down in the gospel accounts was, in essence, an eyewitness account. Now, have you ever noticed that when an accident happens, they interview witnesses? And witnesses often have different versions of what happened based off their perspective or vantage point. If you see a car crash, there might be one person at one corner and one person at the other corner. Together, they're going to try to explain what happened, and it looks like they have diverging stories, but the truth is it's two different perspectives illustrating the same uh, occurrence. This first became illuminated for me when, as a young teenager, I became uh, really interested in the infamous assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And when, if you've ever done any research on that horrific uh, occurrence, you'll know that there's a lot of conflating, differing, disagreeing opinions on what happened. And that's because there were hundreds upon hundreds of eyewitnesses to this. There's video footage even. And these eyewitnesses were at different vantage points, different angles, and had different perceptions. Some people thought they heard one shot. Some people thought they heard three or four, but they might have been hearing the ricocheting of the sound off the buildings. Some people thought they saw this guy, but then they were sure that they saw this other guy. It's the different vantage points. So too, when you look at the Gospels, it's as if you have four different vantage points all illuminating the same great story. And God Almighty inspired these guys to grant us an inspired eyewitness account of who Jesus is and why he is there. So here's the point. The reason why you need to take this into account 
is when you read the Gospels, you need to be careful about saying, well, since it's not there, no way it happened. Because you need to remember the Gospels are not supposed to be exhaustive accounts. They are hand-selecting key things that we were supposed to know. If there's disagreement between the Gospels, that's not proof that the Bible's wrong. It is actually proof that there were two different eyewitnesses giving two different perspectives. And by the way, every single, and I've read it, I've read all the books because I had my own crisis of apologetic faith when I was in college trying to grapple with this. Every single argument out there about the Gospels disagreeing with each other has been resolved. There is a rational explanation for all of them. So lay your head on your pillow at night and sleep well. There are smart people that can say, here's why Luke would have said this, and here's why Mark would have said that. It actually doesn't conflict. It agrees. So that is the gospel genre. Now, that brings us to the most infamous of them all, the one that should send uh, shivers down your spine. Do you know that there is a genre closely related to the prophetic genre, but it is admittedly just a little different. Have you guys ever found that there's two places in the Bible that read so differently than all the rest that it's like, man, it's almost like head scratching. Those two places in the Bible are the last half of the book of Daniel and the last book of the Bible, the Revelation. They are filled with all these fantastic images, these crazy pictures that should make your eyes pop open. I've always said, if you're bored, if you've got a bored teenager, tell him to go read Revelation. It's better than any blockbuster film out there. Go read it. It is an astounding page-turning book filled with all this odd, enigmatic imagery that'll make your head spin. That's because this genre belongs to what we call the apocalyptic genre. Apocalyptic is from the Greek word apokalupsis, which means to reveal or to unveil. This is, in other words, a very unique way of talking that uses highly symbolic language to present wonderful truths that are yet to occur. Now, there is debate on how to interpret the book of Revelation, so I'm going to slightly wave the white flag here as well. Genuine Christians disagree on how literal or how figurative you should interpret this book. But in general, even the most literal people out there admit that there is a whole lot of language in the book of Revelation that is very clearly figurative. So, for example, when I was a kid, perhaps I've told you this story before, I was reading the book of Revelation. I was like, I don't know, eight or nine years of age. And I read Revelation 4. It's that great throne room scene. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to draw this. I was kind of into drawing at the time. So I went to my bedroom. I got out my whatever I had. And I began to draw what I saw. And folks, do you want to know what I drew? If you've ever read Revelation 4, it's like a horror scene. It looked like the cover of a horror film. The things I were drawing, I was like, this doesn't look majestic. It looks insane. And that's because I was over-literally reading that book. I was trying to convey exactly what I was reading. But when you read Revelation, you must conclude that there is a lot of symbolic language throughout. Now, there's debate. Some people think something's symbolic and some people think it's literal. And I am willing to have that debate. Happy to have it because I'm not exactly sure. In fact, incidentally, do you want to know what I'm doing right now? In my personal devotions, and I and all the pastors have personal devotions every morning, we actually report to one another in this GroupMe app every single morning where we've read in the Bible. And if you're a pastor at Hickory Grove, then you know that I have been in the book of Revelation now for like the last month. And that's because I am slowly working verse by verse through that book, trying to make sense of it and determining what I believe about every verse of it. I've got an incredible commentary that shows the four main views of it, and they're all wildly different. And it's helping me make sense of all the arguments and come to a deep-seated conviction on how I think this book is communicating glorious truth. I'm only to... I think I just finished chapter 11, or maybe I'm in the middle of chapter 11 today. Um, I either just finished it or I'm almost finished with it. 
And I'm telling you guys, it's, it's like I've bled all over my Bible. I've got a wide margin Bible. I've got notes everywhere because it is a highly confusing, symbolic book. When you approach apocalyptic literature, you need to just come at it with a sense of humility and say, this is very clearly not written clearly. <laughs> it's not clear. And we need to be okay with that. This is written in such a way to convey mysteries that are to come. Praise God that he revealed it to us. We should take it seriously. But as a consequence, we should have humility one with the other and recognize that the church of Christ is big enough to have a, a lot of differing views on how to make sense of this. Because genuine believers that believe the same thing about the Bible and have the same convictions about the gospel of Jesus Christ can differ on how should we interpret this particular. As long as we believe that Jesus is literally, physically coming again, we can debate on how he's going to do it. Because there is a lot of confusion on how he's going to do it. When you approach apocalyptic literature, my big takeaway to you would be tread lightly and approach humbly. Now let me conclude our study tonight and for this whole session by giving you one big old how to do it. Why, why is this going to help you? Why is this even worth your time? Well, one of the reasons why I think taking note, learning the genre is so critical is first off, it's going to help you learn how to apply the first skill. So if the first skill is y'all need to learn to see, now you know what to look for. If you know the type of genre you're reading, you now have clues of what to look for. For example, if you go to Revelation, you're like, Pastor Kyler told me that this is strange language. It's highly symbolic. So now I'm going to start looking for things and ask myself, is that symbolic or is it literal? Is that symbolic or is it literal? What does that mean? Okay, he's talking about these stars here. What could that mean? It's going to help you learn what to look for. Related, it's going to help you learn how to read. You're now not going to read uh, the Psalms as literally as you'd read the history. And you're not going to read the history as figuratively as you might read the prophecy. And you're not going to read the prophecy the exact same way you'd read the Gospels. You now know how to read the genres differently. When it comes to context, when you're reading history, you should expect context to be chronological. David came before Solomon, and Solomon came before the divided kingdom. There's your context. But when you get to Revelation, there's actually great debate on how Revelation is organized chronologically. A lot of people think it's not organized chronologically. And if that's the case, you're looking for a different type of context. You're going to read it and say, okay, well... He's talking about the stars. Where else are stars talked about in the Bible? Let me find other texts in the Bible that talk about the stars being in the hand or the sword proceeding from his mouth. Is that mentioned elsewhere in the Bible? There's your context that you're trying to pull together to make sense of what could that possibly mean? It'll help you apply that third skill. The background, the whole historical cultural background, of course, that makes sense because now whatever genre you're in, you need to think about how important is it that I know who wrote this? Well, remember, I told you, it's really critical with prophecy. You need to make sure you know who's doing the talking and to whom is getting the talking before you make a stab at what that prophecy could possibly mean. It'll help you apply that fourth skill. And then, generally speaking, when it comes to that fifth skill, learning the big, great story of the Bible, knowing the genres will help you realize that the Bible does not present the story in one big straight line like a child's book would. It presents the Bible in kind of a zigzaggy line. The story of the Bible is not from point A to point B. It takes the back roads. You ever have that grandpa who always said, let's take the scenic route? I had a, my grandfather who went to be the Lord a couple years ago. He always wanted to take me to dinner and said, Kyler, let's take the scenic route. And it took like 10 times as long as it needed to, to get to the restaurant. But he liked the journey. And you want to know what's true? Not only do I remember that, it was beautiful memories of taking that scenic back road, zigzagging our way through. He showed me something that I would not have seen going 70 miles an hour down Highway 50 outside of Kansas City, Missouri to rush to the Perkins restaurant to get that pot pie. We took the zigzag route. The Bible presents itself that way too. It zigs and it zags through. And sometimes you're going to find yourself in the law. Sometimes you're going to find yourself in poetry, in prophecy, in the gospel. But praise God, you want to know where it ends? It ends in that crazy forest called the apocalypse. And praise the Lord, we may not understand it fully right now, but there is coming a day when our faith will be made sight and we're going to say, now I know what I believe about the end times because I'm living in it. That is coming at the end of our great story. In other words, folks, I, I just want you to see that these six skills we've learned, 
I know they can feel overwhelming to you. They even feel overwhelming to me saying it. But I want to conclude with this simple analogy that, Lord willing, will be an encouragement to you. Any of you brothers or sisters, some of the redeemed, the remnant of this church that play golf? Anybody play golf? Cowan, is he still in here? I know he plays golf. I played with him. All right, so all y'all are unsaved. I got it. In the game of golf, there's a lot of rules, and it can be overwhelming. When you learn golf, they tell you to keep your feet exactly shoulder length apart. Your knees need to be bent just so. You need to address the ball in a certain way. Your hand has to be in a certain position, your head down in just a certain way. As you begin to pull the club back, you need to keep your left arm straight, but your eyes right on the ball. You need to have just the right rotation, and if you get it off just at all, you're going to be off. Your hand can't torque too much to the left or to the right. It needs to stay straight. You need to backswing, but not too far, and then the sequence of coming down has to be absolutely perfect, and then you're hips have to turn open and only then will you hit the ball straight. Now, you can know that perfectly. You could be the guy who could go teach Tiger Woods how to swing. But if you address the ball and you actually think about all those skills, you are going to swing and hit the ball terribly. It always happens. The guys that overthink their swing duff it. When you get up to the ball, you need to know it and then forget it and just Grip it and rip it. And you want to know what's going to happen? You know those rules, and you're going to hit it, and you're going to hit it well. This is how it is with learning these skills. Right now, you're in the elementary stages of like, okay, skill one, skill two, skill three, skill four, skill five. Man, Kyler made this look a lot easier than it is. And then you're back swinging, and you're like, I, I just hit the ball, and it went like five feet. I, I am no good at this. Keep swinging. Just slowly start applying these six skills. You may be so embarrassed by it, you're like, nobody can know how bad I am at this. Just keep doing it. Keep practicing it. And you want to know what's going to happen? I promise you. If you just start slowly practicing these six skills, all of a sudden, it's going to slowly start becoming second nature. And you're going to stop thinking about them in terms of six skills. It's going to be second nature. Just like so many of you know by experience complex tasks that I wouldn't know how to do, that I need you to teach me, but you know it secondhand. It's because you've done it so many times. You can get this when it comes to studying the Bible, and before you know it, you'll grip it, and you'll rip it, and you will be able to rightly divide God's Word in such a way that you and I together, by God's grace, will be found faithful on the final day as those whom Paul commanded in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, who studied, who did our best to show ourselves as approved unto God as workmen who had no need to be ashamed, you will be one who will finally be able to rightly divide the word of truth. May God grant that for you, for the glory of his name, the good of this church, and the good of your gospel witness. Why don't you join me as we pray? And when I say amen, we'll transition into a time of church conference. Join me now as we pray. Father in heaven, I thank you and praise you for these dear brothers and sisters. For those who feel overwhelmed by the subject matter, pray that you would ease their mind and grant them a resolve to practice just as I attempted to illustrate at the end. To practice, albeit in a clunky way, these six skills and by your grace, may they slowly but surely begin to learn that it's not merely a science, but dare I say an art. And I pray that you would grant them the confidence to continuously go to your work, to see what's there, to read it for how it should be read, to take note of its context and its background and the bigger story, and to not neglect the different genres of the Bible. I pray you would help them do this. And in so doing, I pray that they would be found as those who are faithfully, rightly dividing your word of truth. Granted, I pray for the glory of your name. Amen.